We're going to be in Exodus chapter 9 this morning, sorry, 19 this morning. Exodus 19 can be found on page 63 in those black pew Bibles that are right there in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word today that's your own, you're welcome to take those with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and understand. And that's what we hope to do today, just understand God's Word together. We've been in Exodus uh, this time since the beginning of January. Uh, this is our third winter uh, in Exodus, so we started back in 2021. Uh, we did six or eight chapters that year, another six or eight chapters uh, the following year, and we will stay here until Easter, and then uh, we'll move on to something else, and next January, Lord willing, we'll jump back into Exodus again and just keep up this pattern until we are finished. But we're getting to the exciting part, at least for me, Exodus chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. This is God's word. In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. This is God's word. Would you pray with me over the reading of it? Father, we come grateful today just that we have your word. God, just as you gave your words to Moses there at Sinai, God, you have given your words to us today. And this is the only word that we have by which we can build our lives on that firm foundation we sang about just a few minutes ago. And so, Lord, as your people gathered, we pray that you would give us wisdom from your word today. Help us to understand it in such a way that we grow in our love for you, that we grow in our love for the people around us, and that we're able to apply your word in such a way that we would be doers of it and not hearers only. We pray in your son's name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I finally gave up. It took almost six hours of sitting in a movie theater, against my will for the most part, but I finally threw in the towel. And this is going to sound silly to you, I, I acknowledge from the beginning, but when I was in college, it was really important to me not to like the Lord of the Rings movies. Like many of you, I spent most of my late teens and early 20s with a medical condition called stupidity, but hear me out here. You see, I was aware of the books. Okay? I, I, I knew they were out there. I was in high school when the first movie came out in 2001. And the whole idea, the whole premise is right up my alley. But part of my diagnosed stupidity caused me to think that I needed to act cool. And I already loved all the nerdy stuff. Star Wars, Star Trek, comic books, Voltron, video games. I was into all of it. I didn't like show it, 
Because let's be honest, I was, I mean, I was Baptist long enough to know that you need to look like, no, I'm kidding, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but but I, I wanted to look cool, even though I knew I wasn't cool. And so I was into all that stuff, and when the Lord of the Rings got so popular, something in me caused me to resist. I already do all the nerdy stuff, I can't do this one too. Then The Return of the King, the, the third movie, came out when I was in college. Um, and we had an opportunity that really you only have when you're in college, right? Somebody knew somebody, and so we were going to go watch a movie that I don't even remember uh, at a movie theater. It was the last movie of the night, and then after the theater closed, there was a worker that, again, someone knew somebody who knew someone else. They were going to keep the theater open just for like the 15 or so of us just to watch Return of the King on the day that it came out. I'm sure that Regal Cinemas had no idea this was happening. It was probably illegal, but none of that ever crossed my mind. We were just going to go sit at the movie theater for most of the night. And so I went because most of my friends were going, and, and I rather loudly lied about thinking the Lord of the Rings movies were dumb, even though I'd never seen the first two. Return of the King runs for three hours and 20 minutes, in case you're curious. So between the first movie we watched, the time we spent waiting for the theater to close, and then watching the second movie, we were there for like seven hours. But about an hour into Return of the King, I finally gave up. I only understood 10% of what was going on, but I thought it was awesome. And so even though it was the third movie in the series, I, there was like seven hours worth of things I didn't know that already happened in the series. So over the next few weeks, I went out and rented the first few movies. If you're younger than me and don't understand what it means to rent a movie, ask someone whose hairline is receding. They'll tell you about Blockbuster and all the awesome things that came along with that um, and how it's better than Netflix and we wish we could all go back. But, but the movie began to make a lot more sense when I had context. Again, I thought it was awesome. Like the, the third movie itself stands alone and it's great. And if you want to argue about those things, I don't know, see Jerry. He'd love to argue that sort of thing with you. Uh, he's got that kind of time. It's not like he's busy. Um, no, he's busy doing like 40 things, working a full-time job, being here, doing a great job with the students. So thank you, Jerry. Um, but I, I watched the other movies and I had the context and it meant even more to me. I, I loved them uh, then, love them now. I've since read the books. I've wasted so much of my life in Middle Earth. And I've also given up on thinking I'm cool, by the way. That happened when the kids were born. After that, I was like, all right, White Sox minivan, let's go. Um, let's be who we really are. Here's why I tell you that story. The beginning of Exodus 19, the, the verses we just read, they give us the context for the law. And understanding this chapter is vital for understanding the whole unfolding story of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books written over dozens of years, uh, sorry, uh, written uh, by dozens of authors over about 1,500 years, but it tells one story. And the law is a central piece of understanding that story. And when I say the law, I mean the law that God is about to give. See, we're not there yet, but we'll get there in a few weeks as God in Exodus 20 and so on and so forth begins unfolding his law, his way of living for Israel. And you can love the Bible, but not fully grasp it if you don't have a complete understanding of what this law, what this covenant means. You can live as a Christian for a long time and only have a vague concept of what God's law given at Mount Sinai really means. But once you understand it, once we begin to really use 
Exodus 19 is kind of a lens to see the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible through. I think that God's love will mean even more to you. You'll love it more because you understand the context more. You'll be able to lead a life that glorifies God even more deeply because when we see his word set in really the context of this covenant, it causes our hearts to love God more. It causes our hearts to grow in affection. It causes us to see even more deeply this great love that God has for us. Verse 1 in Exodus 19, it, it parks us at base camp. We talked about that last week. This is the spot where we're going to, to sit, we're going to camp here, for lack of a better word, for 11 months. Not in our sermon series, but that's what Israel did. They, they stayed right there for 11 months, and these 11 months are a time period that Israel will never forget. In fact, the Bible slows down here. The Bible up to this point took about uh, 2,600 years over the course of 58 chapters, the first 58 chapters of the Bible. Israel is going to wander the wilderness for 38 years on the other side of these 11 months, and we're only told about a small portion of that wandering. But these 11 months occupy the bulk of three entire books of the Bible, from Exodus 19 all the way to Leviticus, uh, through Leviticus and into Numbers chapter 10, are all spent right here. Church, God is up to something huge in these verses, and he gives us a preview here in Exodus 19, 1 through 6. He's previewing and preparing his people to receive this new covenant. A covenant is a promise, and it was a very serious matter in the world of the Israelites. Today, when two countries uh, enter into a covenant or an agreement or a treaty, they make a big deal out of it by all dressing up real fancy, gathering in a big room, using fancy pens, making a photo op, and things were different in Israel's world. Things were a little more graphic. You see, the custom would have been to bring in an animal, a calf, a sheep, a ram, something like that. And you would take it, and you would you'd sacrifice it, you'd kill it, and then you'd cut it in half, and you'd put one side on, or half of it on one side, half of it, in fact, Dan's sitting in the back, Dan, you brought a sheep, well, you're going to go out and get, no, I'm kidding, we're not doing that. Um, but imagine the gravity, right? This is a serious thing that, that, that they would have been entering into, and so the, all the Israelites understood what a covenant was, and so to enter it, you would separate the animal, and the two parties entering the covenant would walk between the separate pieces of the animal, signifying like, hey, if I break this covenant, this is what's going to happen to me. It was the original cross my heart and hope to die. Okay, this is the type of covenant that Israel is about to enter into. And God enters into covenant over and over again with his people. In fact, you see this very version of this animal separation type of covenant in Genesis 15. God does it with Abraham. Jeremiah 34, God does it again. The more we understand Scripture, the more that we understand God is a God of covenant. He entered a covenant with Adam. Okay, you have the whole garden. Eat anything you want. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam breaks the covenant. God actually makes another covenant with Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. It's where God promises the gospel for the first time, Genesis 3.15. You should underline, highlight, star that verse in your Bible. It's the first gospel promise. As soon as humanity sins, as soon as we mess it up, God promises that he's going to be the one that fixes it. Later, God makes covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. After the flood, God promised that he would never again send a worldwide flood to destroy the earth as an act of 
judgment for sin. It's the Noahic covenant. Genesis 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham. That's where he separates the animal. And part of that covenant is actually why we're here. Okay, part of the Abrahamic covenant is what leads us to Egypt and thus out to Mount Sinai because God told Abraham that his descendants would be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that turned out to be Egypt and then that God would rescue them. So Moses and the Israelites arriving here at Sinai in Exodus 19 is a direct result of God's covenant back in Genesis 15. Israel would have been aware of this. God later enters into a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, and then over in Luke 22, Jesus talked about a new covenant established in his blood, and we'll visibly remember that covenant together here in just a little bit when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But God is a God of covenant. And Exodus 19 is set up specifically to prepare Israel to understand this covenant before they enter into it. And there's no fine print in God's covenant. God is, is, is bold about the terms of the covenant itself. God doesn't hide anything. And in 1996, Pepsi launched an ad campaign where their slogan was, drink Pepsi, get stuff. So you drink it, you collect points from the packaging, and according to the commercial, you could redeem them for clothes and sunglasses and all kinds of stuff like that. I vaguely remember it from when I was younger. But one of the commercials, intended to be a joke, stated that if you collect 7 million Pepsi points, you'd get a $37 million Harrier jump jet, a military fighter plane. And there's always that one guy. You have that one guy in your family. If you don't, it's you. In fact, knowing some of you, it's you. If I'm in a room, often it's me. But that one guy in this instance is named John Leonard. He took Pepsi seriously. He spent $708.50. Got to get that $8.50 in there. That makes a difference. To collect enough Pepsi points to turn in 7 million points to Pepsi, and they promptly told him to buzz off. He sued. The case went all the way to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, but Leonard lost. See, apparently there was some fine print in that Pepsi ad, either real or implied that he missed. But when it comes to God's covenant, there is no fine print. These six verses give us a clear lens through which to interpret what God is about to do in laying out the covenant and laying out the terms of his law and laying out what a, a God-honoring life looks like, the thing that he's about to do from uh, Exodus 20, all the way through the book of Leviticus and into Numbers. By the way, it's, what, mid-February now? There's somebody here that's doing a year-long Bible reading plan. And you've arrived in Leviticus, the place where your reading plan goes to die. And so I encourage you, muscle through, because Leviticus is all about worship. It's all about what it means to live life in covenant with God. And so hopefully after today, there will be new hope, new life breathed into that Bible reading plan that I know you can complete if you just get through Leviticus. You see, the first thing that we see is God's covenant begins with grace. There's, there's five truths that illustrate that grace to us in verses 3 and 4. The first one is that Moses goes up to God. God invites Moses to him right there in verse 3. You mentioned Adam and Eve a minute ago. They were, they were kicked out of the presence of God. They had the most intimate 
relationship with God that any created being has ever had. Do you recognize that? Adam and Eve interacted with God without the stain of sin. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. Yet their sin caused them to be separated, to be kicked out of the presence of God. And humanity will never have that kind of relationship with God again on this side of eternity. Yet we get these little glimpses, church. We get these little glimpses, these little reminders that God is calling us back. God calls Moses into his presence. And that's going to be a theme from chapter 19 to chapter 34. Moses goes up the mountain somewhere around a dozen times. Some are stated, some are implied, but so you can't really get an exact count. But either way, Moses did some serious hiking in these ensuing verses. God calls Moses into his presence. Church, just the fact that the God of the universe would deign to, to enter into a covenant, to call humanity into his presence reminds us that we have a God of grace. God approaching us to enter covenant relationship with us is an undoing of Eden. God kicks us out of his presence because of our sin. As he begins to save us, as his grace draws us in, he calls us back. Not because of anything that we've done, but because he is a good and holy God. So God calls Moses into his presence, and second, he gives him a reminder. He says, this is what you must say and explain. That's what God tells Moses. But the information he gives isn't new. They, they had all lived through the stuff God describes here. And reminders are important. They're, they're present all over Scripture because God continually calls us to look back. We'll pause to look back at Jesus' sacrifice when we celebrate the Lord's Supper later. We sang a reminder earlier when we sang, I will trust my Savior Jesus. We sang, I, I will trust my Savior Jesus, trust in Him. When my strength is small, for I know the shield of Jesus is the safest place of all. You see, God reminds Israel in the text that he is trustworthy. And we need those reminders. We sing those reminders. We write those reminders uh, as, as scripture verses. If you write in a, in a journal or if you have scripture that you use just as motivation and encouragement, most of those are reminders of what God has promised for you and I. Specifically, what he does here is remind them of two things. They're the third and fourth truths we need to see in these, first two ver in these uh, verses 3 and 4. If you look in verse 4, it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. If you remember, the Egyptians rejected God. They fought against him, and he utterly destroyed them. God poured out plague after plague on them. He made them so miserable that they basically paid Israel to get out. Go. Get out of our country. And then Pharaoh changed his mind, pursued them with his army, and God wiped them out in the Red Sea. See, this text is all about, church, what God has done. God is the star of the story. That's the fourth truth. God is the author and the finisher. God is the hero. God is the one who wiped out Egypt and rescued Israel. And they needed this reminder, and we do too, because there's a couple of ways that we can misunderstand this covenant that God is about to enter into. If we if we misunderstand this covenant, we can actually misunderstand the, the gospel itself. See, the first way to misunderstand it is to think that we have earned it. If you've been with us for most of our journey through Exodus, you'll remember that we've encountered two people groups thus far. Right? The Egyptians on one hand, the Israelites on the other. 
I want to describe one of those groups to you. Tell me if you can guess who I'm describing. This people group, they, they heard the word of God as shared to them by Moses. Moses representing Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. They, they knew that God warned them things would go badly for them if they didn't do what he said. They saw God had power over nature, over animals, over life and death. They, they knew that this God was able to provide food or to cut off food. Yet time after time, they disobeyed him. Israel or Egypt, which people group is that? No, it's both, right? Egypt had opportunities to change. They had opportunities to let, through Pharaoh, the Israelites go, and they rejected God. After Israel left Egypt, after the Red Sea, this whole section we've been studying this year, over and over again, Israel grumbles. They complain. God gives them food from heaven, and they complain. God gives them water to drink, and they complain. God has rescued them. God has given them freedom, and they complain. Nowhere in this text does it celebrate how good Israel was. And church, we need to hear that. Israel did nothing to earn God's favor. God saved Israel despite their performance, not because of it. But it won't take long after God gives the law, the terms of this new covenant, in the ensuing chapters for Israel to reduce those laws, to reduce that relationship to an achievement list. I do all these things, so I must be holy. I must deserve God's grace. And church, those of us who sit in this room week after week desperately need to hear that because we too are susceptible to thinking that we've earned God's grace. Nothing that we did before our salvation and nothing that we have done since earn us anything in God's sight. God didn't foresee any goodness in us. He didn't choose us because he knew we'd cho choose him. No, according to the text, he chose us because he's good, not because we are. doesn't matter how much scripture we memorize, how long we've taught a Sunday school class, how many hungry people we've fed, we don't earn God's grace. Those are good things, things we should do. And we'll talk about their place in just a minute. But they don't earn us anything in God's eyes. God tells Moses, you've seen what I did. Church, the biggest problem Israel is going to have going forward is that they keep God's command outwardly without letting it take hold of their hearts. They had a form of outward obedience without any heart change, so much so that when Jesus came along, he called the holiest men among them, the best Israel had to offer, he called them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're rotten on the inside. You see, this first danger of misunderstanding God's covenant is that we think it's a to-do list. God gives us his law, we check the box of obeying his law, and we're fine. It's not a list of rules to be obeyed, like a kindergarten teacher posting it on her wall so that you come in and you know what you're supposed to do and what you're not. That's not what God gives us. We'll talk about what he is giving us in just a minute, but let's see the second danger first, because it's the opposite end of that spectrum. We, we don't think we're too good to need God's grace. In fact, we think we're so bad that we're beyond God's grace. And I, I can't state this often enough. No one under the sound of my voice is beyond God's grace. Redemption. 
As long as there's breath in your lungs, God is being patient with you. And Second Peter tells us that patience is not because he is because he doesn't want you to perish, but because he wants you to come to repentance. Moses is exhibit A that you're not too far gone for God's grace. Moses is a murderer who left his people, who ran from God for 40 years. And when God called Moses, he went kicking and screaming. He didn't want to go. Moses had been separated from the people of Israel for 40 years. He'd been working in Midian as a shepherd under his father-in-law Jethro. We talked about Jethro a bit last week. And Moses was minding his own business, not seeking after God at all, going about his regular day-to-day life, and God appeared to him, God spoke to him from a burning bush. God miraculously called out to Moses, and Moses' response was not, here I am, send me. It is not, God, you're so good. It was, God, send somebody else. Take Tommy Thompson, take Jimmy Johnson, take any boy in the world. Don't take me, God. Send the girl. I don't care. Send somebody else, just not me. That's not what God did. God called out to Moses. God overcame his rejection. And he used Moses anyway. Moses did some awesome things. He led Israel out of Egypt. But scripture explicitly states that Moses was a flawed savior. He's inadequate, so inadequate, so flawed, that he won't even get into the promised land. You see, I know some of you are here, and we are blessed in this church to have new people just about every week. We have people that have gone here for a long time. We've never made a profession of faith. We've got folks who, who are trusting Jesus and following and folks who are searching here. And I know that some of you are here. You've heard the gospel. You know you need the gospel. But somewhere in those dark corners of your mind, you're unconvinced that the gospel will work for you. Everyone in your life has told you you're not enough. So why would you be enough for God? Hear me today. I, I beg of you. God put you in a place now to hear the gospel. He didn't do that on accident. He wants you, yes, you, to come to repentance. He wants you to have everlasting life. Paul wrote in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, I suspect that we have folks in both camps here today. You've been around church life long enough to know the lingo, you know the rules, you know when to stand up, when to sit down. You know the words to some of the songs. You know how to look the part. But you recognize that you've never done what Paul just did. You've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You've gotten me fooled. You've probably fooled most of uh, people in this room. You may have even fooled yourself. Or on the other end of that spectrum, you're just realizing today, right now, that God truly will accept you despite your past, despite what you've done or what people have done to you. God will accept you. God wants you. God put you here to hear this word so that you'll repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ because all of us need rescue. The whole nation of Israel needed God's rescue. We've all sinned against God. We all find ourselves in our own personal Egypt, slavery to sin. You see, the good news is that not only does God's covenant begin with grace, but he takes the first step. That's the fourth thing. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
This is the, the first time we see that eagle's wings imagery in Scripture, but we see it over and over again. Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 40, all the way to Revelation 12. It's always a reminder that God does something we can't do. We can't swoop in and lift ourselves out of our sin. God does that for us. And he did just that through a miracle for the Israelites. He offers that same miracle to you and I. The fourth truth is that God does what we can't to bring about our own rescue. You see, the gospel is that we all, the gospel teaches us that we all fall short. We are all born spiritually dead. We all inherit that same sin nature that was present in Adam and Eve. And because of our sin, we earn the wrath of a good and righteous God. But instead of pouring out that wrath on us, instead of punishing us, instead of treating us like Egypt, God treats us like Israel. He sent Jesus Christ to be a substitute sacrifice, to die the death that we earned. Even though he didn't earn death, he was perfect. He was fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life. This whole law that God is about to unfold, he kept it head, heart, and hands. Okay, he understood it. He lived it in his heart. He did it in his actions. He fulfilled the law in our place because we can't, church, we never will, but Jesus did, and he offers us salvation. That's the gospel. It's on us to respond to it with our whole life. God's people enter into this covenant with him today by confessing our sins, repenting in our heart, believing that Jesus is our Savior. If you haven't done that today, I, I can't encourage you enough to do that before you leave this room. Those who repent of their sins, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, you, even if you think you're too far gone, you even can have that perfect work of Christ substituted in your place for your works. You can earn his righteousness, or you can, you can be given his righteousness that he earned that you never could. But that covenant is not a one-time transaction. You see, this is something that changes everything about your life, and that's what we learn in verse 5. It's an ongoing relationship. God says, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. You'll be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you were to say to the Israelites. See, God's covenant includes the blessing of responsibility. God's law, that the next several dozen chapters of Scripture, it's not a set of rules, it's an expression of grace. Because it's easy to read this and think there's a catch, right? God says, I'll save you. And then it seems like there's this if-then statement. But God isn't running an infomercial here. Now, he's not trying to sell you a sham wow. He's not saying, but wait, there's more. That's not what God is doing in this covenant. I can see it can sound like that. At first glance, it can, it can sound like an if-then relationship. If you obey, then I'll be your God. But that's not the covenant. We have to read this in the context of the grace that he has just poured out in verses 3 and 4. God just told Moses in verses 3 and 4, we can't save ourselves. One preacher said it's impossible to interpret Moses saying the opposite of that in verse 5 unless you think Moses was the biggest dithering idiot of all time. I only include that because when you find a quote that says dithering idiot, it has to make the sermon. So how do we read this? Okay, how do we understand 
what God says in verse 5 in light of what he says in verses 3 and 4. We need to recognize that every relationship, every covenant has responsibilities. This is not God saying, I'll save you if you follow. This is God saying, I have saved you so that you can follow. I have, I have given you life so you can live a life for me. And we've got to recognize that every relationship comes with responsibilities. You don't have a relationship that doesn't have responsibilities. Your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your boss, your employees, all those relationships come with responsibilities. But in God's economy, the way things work, when God is ordering your life, responsibilities are blessings. Think about children. If you want a relationship where you only get joy and have no obligations, a relationship where it's fun all the time and where there's no stress, then don't have kids. They're the absolute greatest blessing you're ever going to experience on this side of eternity, but there's responsibilities at every stage. Trust me, we've got every stage living in our house. And it's awesome. But relationships come with responsibilities. God keeps his responsibilities, so if we're truly in this covenant, he's going to empower us to keep ours as well. See, Israel has called three things in these verses that we need to latch on to today. Israel has called God's special possession, they're called a kingdom of priests, and they're called a holy nation. God does the saving, that's the blessing. The responsibilities that come alongside the blessing are spelled out here too. God's not saying, keep my law and in return I'll make you these things. Church, he's declaring these things over his people because they are his. Not because they're now good. When you pay for something in a store, some of you still use actual cash um, to, to do that. I often don't myself. But, but in reality, that cash that you hand people, it doesn't actually have all that much like, real value. I mean, you always hear like the, you know, the, the chaos merchants on the radio and TV and whatnot telling you to invest in gold because gold has, you know, currency and if we end up in a if we end up in a society where you have to get by on doubloons we're going to have bigger issues right than what sort of money that we're carrying but but we that, that money only has value because there's a whole system backing it that guarantees its value and sure the value may fluctuate a little bit here and there but we we trust that that's going to have value because it always has now, it may not always in the future, and so that's where this illustration breaks down. But, but we recognize that we've entered into this covenant. God has called us into it. God initiates the covenant. And God is going to carry the covenant to completion. So when he says, you're a holy nation, you're a royal priesthood, you can do this. As Stuart said in his deacon prayer earlier, as he's talking to his kids, and he tells them, you can do this. This covenant is God looking at his people and saying, because of who I am, you can do this. You are these things. Again, not because you're impressive, but because God is God. God is shaping Israel to be a special possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Israel is about to grow up into themselves. I've gotten the privilege of coaching Sophie's sixth grade basketball team the last two or three years. When they were in fourth grade, we thought, hey, we should get this team jerseys. They're not like their practice jerseys. So we, we try to have forethought, right? And so we oh, these are fourth grade girls. They're going to grow. And so let's buy jerseys that they can wear for a couple of years. Well, that first year, 
We looked like the Centralia Trash Panthers, okay? They were wearing hefty bags out on the court because they were huge. But they had their number on the back. They had their name on them. And eventually, they grew into them. They grew up into the things that had their name on them. That's what Israel is about to do in this relationship. They're going to grow up into what God has already called them to be. And let's see really how here the two big things we need to catch. Because they're true of Israel then. They're true of the church today. Because God's people in the Old Testament, they're God's people who are saved by grace through faith. God's people today are saved by grace through faith, so much so that it's not one nation anymore, but a people of any nation, any tribe, tongue, or nation can be saved through, by grace through faith. So if we belong to him, then we are a treasured possession, as another translation puts it. God is saying here that everything in the world is mine, yet I have chosen you to be mine in a special Way. We're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hebrews 4 explains how that works today really well. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. See, a, a, a priest was one that stood between God and the people. God is saying that we are now all priests in his kingdom. We go directly to God through Jesus. So there is no human standing in our place. So if the entire nation is to be a priest, what does that mean? Well, the priest intercedes for people. So church, this uh, this really is the foundation for missions right here. This is why we send. This is why we go. Remember, 66 books, one story, this whole kingdom of priests, this nation of priests. If we're going to intercede for someone, it has to be for other nations. It has to be for other peoples. That's the biblical mandate for mission. Peter grabs hold of this idea in the New Testament. He quotes this passage, 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, we're called into this covenant relationship with God to proclaim how great God is, the one who rescued us from slavery and sin. He lifted us out of death on the wings of eagles, to use the imagery of the text. You see, the blessing of salvation comes with the responsibility to follow God's law, to proclaim his praises as a kingdom of priests. Church, this chapter is crucial for us to understand the relationship between law and grace, between faith and works. And here's my hope for this time, is that we recognize that as God's people here at, at this one church, Centralia, Missouri, mid-Missouri, we are not a place that now, let's be honest, most people can find on a map, right? Before I came to Centralia, Missouri, before I was contacted by the church here, before I saw that you were searching for a pastor, I'd never heard of Centralia. Before I'd heard of St. Louis, heard of Kansas City. I knew that Columbia was a thing, but I didn't know where Centralia was, and most people in the world are that way. But God knows where we are. God has designed his kingdom to work in such a way that there would be a group, a local group of believers here First Baptist Church of Centralia, who are part of a kingdom of priests. That means God has 200 or so people who call themselves a part of this church here, who are a part of his family, who are here to proclaim. 
We've been saved. We've been called out of our death for the purpose of proclaiming God's goodness with the way that we live our life, with the way that we worship, and with the story that we tell. You, church, today are a special possession. A holy, and holy in this context just means set apart. A holy nation. Part of a kingdom of priests. Each one of us has a role to play in the kingdom of God. Each one of us has a purpose in God's economy. And that purpose begins to take shape with this covenant that God has called us into. So here's my hope for today and as we begin to study the law together in the chapters that ensue. Here's what I hope that we can take and apply from this. To this covenant that God has called us into, it comes with the responsibility of, as we learn in the New Testament, being a people who are serious about making disciples. February 5th, Dr. Matz preached a, a great sermon on the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I commanded you. That's really all we're here for, church. We are here to be goers, and in our going, we teach. What do we teach? We teach what it means to follow Jesus Christ with our lives. We are saved and come to know him. We are baptized into his family, into a local church. And that's really all that we're about as God's people together. So in such a way that everything that we do has glorifying God by making disciples as its end. The way we live in our neighborhood, the way that we work, the way that we raise our family, the way that we live together as a married couple, all of that has God's glory at its end. And all of that contributes to the disciple-making work because that's the covenant that God has offered to us and called us into. And God's not going to let us down in that covenant church. So my last kind of question for us today is, how are we treating that covenant relationship that God has called us to? You see, every time you download an app on your phone, you, you download it and it, you know, it does its little downloading thing and you open it for the first time. And of course, it's going to ask for your you know, email address and your address and your name and your maiden name and your date of birth and your blood type and how many COVID shots you've had and all those things that apps ask. You know. But at the end of all that information... It's going to ask you to check a box that says you have read the terms and conditions of using that app. And then every one of you lie. Because you all click it and none of you, and anyone, let's just be honest. Anyone ever read the entire terms and conditions of anything in your life ever? Good. We're honest. It's very good. We're going to feature you at the invitation if you raised your hand. But anyway... You click it, and you're in. We're not treating that contract, that covenant, very seriously. However, if you buy a house, you have to sign 473,000 pieces of paper with your name. You're signing over the rights to all future children that will be born to you and anything else that will happen later in your life for the next 30 years or so. That's how you enter into that contract. You take that one a little bit more seriously than you did the contract you signed to play Candy Crush, right? My fear is that we sit and get comfortable in the Christian walk so long that we treat this covenant God has called us into more like the candy crush contract than the mortgage. Okay, we did it once. It's in the past. We think about it. It's still there. It's still something that we do sometimes. But it really doesn't have all that much impact on the way that we live. Church, God has called us into a relationship, not into a list of, rules, not into a way to dress, not into a, a routine to observe on Sundays. That's not what God called us to. God called us to relationship, and he's shown us what that relationship looks like. 
And we're all just learning together how to live out that law God has set before us. None of us are ever going to be perfect. None of us are ever going to be anything to celebrate when it comes to our holiness. We're trying. We're growing. We want to be holier yet today, uh, tomorrow than we were yesterday. I almost said that backwards. That's not what we're after. Uh, we want to be holier tomorrow than we were yesterday. And we recognize that we're going to fail along the process. And we also recognize that we need people to be in this with us. That's why we're here as a church. God didn't call us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He called us into community with himself and in community with each other. And so it's my hope that as we look at the Bible in terms of covenant, that we can see that we didn't just make covenant with God. We are covenanted together as his people to grow together. And we need each other in this church. And so let's commit in the days ahead to treat this covenant God has called us to with the appropriate severity, with the appropriate reverence, to own the gospel each and every day, to recognize that we fall short, God loves us anyway, and we can continue to grow. And then we're going to share that truth with others as well. Would you pray with me? God, your word is so good. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on your word in the, the moments ahead, that God, you would use this good word through the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to refine who we are, to change us, to shape us as your people. Father, we confess that we desperately need you. Lord, each and every one of us, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how long we've been in relationship with you, God, we desperately need you. If we're here and we don't know you, we desperately need salvation. If we're here and we belong to you, we desperately need your strength to carry us through into tomorrow. We need your Holy Spirit chipping away at our heart, refining us to look more like your son, to, to shape us into what we already are, that's your people. Lord, strengthen us by your word, we pray. Help us, Father, as we consider this passage, as we consider what you told Moses here, what it, what it means to, to be your people, God, that we, would, that we would grow into that, God, that we would own that, that we would be those people, that we'd be a kingdom of priests pointing others to you, interceding for them, standing in the gap for the hurting around us. Set us apart to grow in you, we pray. Give us your wisdom. In your son's name. And all God's people say.